Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Amen. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Go ahead and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 11. For those just joining us, we're preaching through the book of Revelation here and we're over halfway through now. And uh, we're about the midpoint of the book. We're about halfway through. I want to say happy birthday to new member Deb Priori. And uh, we did not get her on the birthday list for the month, but wanted to make sure that uh, we wished her a happy birthday today. And also, I want to tell you that at the end of the service, we'll have an opportunity to respond, uh, and the altar will be open as we sing, My Jesus, I Love Thee. And also, I just felt led to say this morning that when we have the time of invitation, you may want to come to the altar and pray specifically for a nation of the world that has less of the gospel and you'd like to see God do a work in that country. If the Lord puts a country like that on your mind, uh, in addition to this great report, I watched Brandon Neal's latest uh, Transworld Radio partner video for those working in uh, the South America, Latin and South America region, and it was so wonderful to see what God's doing all over the place. There are one million Quechua speakers in Peru, uh, and they need the gospel in Quechua that language and those that will reach them with that. And Transworld Radio has some programming to try to do that. So if the Lord lays a specific people like that on your heart, or it may be your own dear prodigal child, prodigal parent, uh, uh, let's let's, uh, fill this altar with prayers at the end of this time. Well, you're in in Revelation 11, but I want to tell you, just three months ago, on December 1st, 2021, the United Nations overwhelmingly passed a resolution targeting Israel and denying that Judaism has any legitimate claim to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And the vote was 129 to 11, 92%. It wasn't even close. The resolution only referred to the place by its Muslim name, Al-Haram al-Sharif. And in passing the resolution, the UN was siding with the Palestinian Authority, who has repeatedly said Israel not only doesn't have the right to ever rebuild its temple, but in fact has no claim to Jerusalem or even existence as a nation. I took a closer look at that, uh, that vote there and who uh, voted no. The only big nations to join Israel in voting against the resolution were the United States, Canada, and Australia. Four more of the nations are so tiny, their combined populations are only 200,000 people. In fact, all 11 countries that sided with Israel and voted no account for less than 500 million of the world's nearly 8 billion people, which is less than 6% of global population. I was interested that many within Israel's borders actually took it in stride because they're used to that kind of anti-Semitism from the world leaders and the nations they lead. Some of them actually pointed out that there's a silver lining that a similar resolution three years ago actually passed 148 to 11. The 11 no's were still the same, those that voted with Israel, the U.S. and others, you know, but there was actually 20-something more that had voted last time. Many of the ones who had voted yes in 2018 this time actually abstained 
including countries like Brazil, Kenya, the UK, and Germany. And I thought about that for a moment. After what happened in Germany during the Holocaust, they ought to be the first in line to recognize Israel's claim to Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, don't you think? But that's not how the evil world system we're in works. Jerusalem's temple goes all the way back to uh, the uh, ancient times. I'll tell you the dates in a little bit. But it was destroyed completely by the Roman Empire in AD 70. All that was left of the complex was the Western Wall. In 637 AD, Muslims conquered Jerusalem, and they built the Dome of the Rock Mosque on top of where Israel's temple had stood in 1023 AD. But Jewish folk around the world have never given up the hope that one day they'd be able to rebuild their temple. Jews still go to that Western Wall and pray for two things to happen. Many of you know what they are. They pray that the temple will be rebuilt, and they'll be able to worship there. They pray for that, and they also pray that the Messiah will come. And of course, as Christians, we believe the Messiah has already come and indeed is going to return. Now, I draw your attention to those things because in today's passage, we're gonna sit, it's set in the future seven-year time of worldwide tribulation. Our minds are drawn again to the future of Israel. And I said, I've said as we go, have gone through this series that there are two keys to understanding prophecy. The first is Jesus. He is the spirit of prophecy and revelations about the return of the king to set up his empire on earth and finally make earth like it should be. And it's going to be fabulous when that happens. Believers are promised one day they'll be in a new body on a new earth without all the ravages of sin of the old earth, which is awesome to think about. But the second key to understanding prophecy is the promises made that God intends to keep to the nation of Israel. So many in the Old Testament and the promises continue on in the New Testament. And there's passages in Revelation that if you don't have that focal point, you'll have a really hard time understanding what's going on. Today's passage is another one of those. Chapter 11, and we're going to read verses 1 through 14. John says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it's been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. And I will give power to my two witnesses. Who are the witnesses? Well, we're going to read more about that in a minute. And they will prophesy one thousand two hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire." When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves." And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, like Christmas, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. They'll be so glad they're dead, it'll be like Christmas Day for earth dwellers. 
Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on all those who saw them. And they heard a voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. God always gives a witness or two. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage of Scripture. And immediately when we read these verses, our minds are drawn to details, some of which we have a general understanding of and some that we probably can't understand. Keep us humble as we look at your word, Lord. Thank you for the things that come through loud and clear in this passage that you always give a witness. All the way back to Old Testament days and beyond, you always give a word of what you're going to do in judgment so that people can hear and turn to you before it's too late. Thank you that you are the kind of God that gives advance notice and gives opportunity for repentance, Lord God, and faith in you and forgiveness with you. Thank you that the heavens declare the glory of God and so all of creation witnesses to how great you are. And thank you for the ways in the past you've witnessed and given word about your greatness through the mouth of prophets and preachers. And here we are in our day, God. You desire to be glorified when we sing, when we share, when we pray. And Lord, I pray that we'll be in on this great movement of testifying for you on the witness stand of life. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Now you heard me pray it, but this is one of the most difficult to interpret uh, chapters in the book of Revelation. Uh, So before I walk you through it, I wanted to first just take a moment for our series and talk again about humility and degrees of certainty when we study the Bible. You know, there, is, there are things that seem very clear as we look at passages like Revelation. There are other things that aren't so clear. And I thought this week, you know, basketball time and seeing some great games in high school gyms recently and things like that, uh, you know, about basketball as an analogy. And I thought particularly about how uh, Malcolm Gladwell, I think it was, said, to master anything, you've got to do it for 10,000 hours. And I thought about those countless hours as a child I spent juggling the soccer ball and throwing it off the wall and practicing trapping it and the different things and the Beatles playing for seven days a week, eight hours a day in Hamburg, Germany, developing their craft and working together to write songs and things. So we're told it takes 10,000 hours to master anything. And so I thought not so much about a basketball guy or girl player uh, out in the game, but I thought about them in the gym practicing or out in their yard practicing shooting the ball. And I thought about the different shots they take as they get better and better at it. And I thought about if you were a very good basketball player and you were tall enough, you could just about dunk the ball 100% of the time. You'd go up and you'd lay it right in the way other people put a piece of paper in the trash. About 100% you'd make it. And then if you were practicing layups and kept going to the basket and practicing those layups, you could probably make 90% or more of those layups, right? And then I thought about uh, the uh, free throw. A very, very good free throw shooter with no noise in the gym and the other things can probably hit over 80% of the shots they take. I'm not sure I'd make any more than 50% of those, but, you know, because I'm so easily squirrel, uh, distracted, but, um, but others could. Now, how about, so we're, our percentage is going down the further away we get from the basket. Now, what could we expect if we went to the uh, three-point line? Steph Curry, probably one of the best three-point shooters in the NBA, gets about 40% of his shots in from the three-point line during a game. 
I bet you when he's practicing, he can hit a 50% or more, you know. So every two shots he takes, one's going to go in. You could pretty much guarantee it. What about a half-court shot? Man, you're a little ways back by then. And so if you were taking a half-court shot, uh, then uh, you'd probably be down to less than 10% of the time. Some very good players, maybe two out of 10 times, but one out of 10 times or less would probably be more like it. Uh, and of course, here's how that relates to Bible study. For serious Bible students that put in the time, there are things that are like slam dunks. Man, you've been reading in the Word and it's obvious. Jesus is God. He's the only way of salvation, things like that. But as you keep on studying and those that are diligent students, uh, there are things that become clear. But depending on the topic in the Scripture, it's more like a three-point shot or a shot from half court. And so don't be fooled by scholars that are 100% sure their three-pointers and half-court shots are on target. We must be humble. And we'll admit, for those who have almost spent no time reading the Bible in general or the book of Revelation in particular, man, everything seems like a half-court shot. But as you get into the Word and the Word gets into you, you see themes spoken of in the Old Testament, brought to life in the New Testament, and you can connect the dots as you go. And that's one of the beautiful things that we have uh, in Bible study. Don't give up on seeking God's face and looking into the scriptures. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of God. And remember what we saw in Revelation 1-3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. And so the book of Revelation promises us a blessing for reading it. That's trying to observe what it says, what it would have meant to its first audience. Uh, what, then hearing it, what it means, that's the timeless theological truths that are in every text. And then application uh, applying it in our lives uh, with, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's uh, try to make sense of this passage together. Well, in verses 1 through 2, we see God measuring. God measures Israel's worship. John says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod, an instrument to measure by. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Now, for those that deny any future for Israel, it's hard to read... Uh, about the temple again and Jewish things again. And uh, I, frankly, those are some of the folks who are going to have the hardest time making sense of passages like this in Revelation because it gets very Jewish again for a few minutes uh, before it goes on. And Jerusalem is talked about and uh, the um, temple and witnesses that seem to be a lot like Moses and Elijah and those things. Uh, maybe you haven't heard of it, but there's something called replacement theology. And it's the view that when you're looking at the scriptures, uh, because Christ offered forgiveness to Israel and Israel didn't accept him in mass at his coming, that now the church has replaced Israel. And even when we read back into the Old Testament, we should see the church in the Old Testament rather than promises made to Israel during a different dispensation of time than the church age that we're in now. Some of them would say John must have wrote this before the temple's destruction in AD 70, and that's why there's a temple to be measured in this passage. And so they would say that within a short time of John's writing Revelation, the temple was destroyed, and now we can get on with just talking about the church. Uh, there's a view called the preterist view that relates almost everything 
in Revelation to the past and finds historical fulfillment in the past. And it's a very popular view, a growing view, that usually goes along with amillennialism that there won't be a millennial reign of Christ on earth and all we're going to do is die and then go to heaven and be, uh, heaven's going to be more like clouds than any kind of physical reality to come. Meanwhile, the expectation throughout the Old Testament was one day being with God on, in the perfect land, right? So Job says, even after my body's destroyed, in my flesh I will see God standing on the earth. I know my Redeemer lives, and I'm going to see him face to face. And that was the expectation. Psalms like Psalm 37 that talk about inheriting the land, inheriting the earth, and that expectation through. Very little about what we call heaven, where saints go now before the new earth, but lots of one day, earth is going to be like it should be, and the Lord's going to be reigning on it. And you see that hope. Other replacement theologians would say John did write later. I've told you I think he probably wrote in the 90s during a wave of persecution going through the Roman Empire. But all of this temple language is just figurative language for the people of God and for heaven. They point out that Revelation 15.5 does speak about a heavenly temple. But since our verse 2 clearly excludes John from measuring the court of the Gentiles... He has to actually be speaking about a temple on earth. He's not speaking about anything but the one that we would have expected there in Jerusalem. So those of us who believe that a big part of what God does in the future is going to involve Israel have a much easier time interpreting this passage. It talks about Jewish things because God plans to keep all the promises that he's made to Israel. So, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, we read that the end times Antichrist will implement a peace treaty that involves Israel and will allow the famous seven-year period that we call the tribulation to begin. And Daniel 9, 27 also tells us that the midpoint, or three and a half years into that tribulation, he's going to desecrate the temple. So there's a relatively calm first half of the tribulation time. And then there is an all hell breaks loose on earth, second part of the tribulation. Now, perhaps that relative calm time is going to allow the Antichrist to allow or help Israel finally rebuild the temple. Because we're looking on as we read now and say, hey, we look at Jerusalem, the temple's not there. They want it to be there, and all kinds of preparations are made. They're ready for the, uh, they're, they're making the sacrificial instruments, they're making the bowls, they're preparing the sacrifices. People in Texas are trying to find red heifers that don't have a single white hair with them, you know, because that's going to be part of the dedication of the temple to come and cleansing and all that that initiates it. And so all those preparations are being made. And if they could rebuild it tomorrow, sacrifices would start in it next week. Um, and all that would be true. So perhaps part of what brings the Antichrist to worldwide rule is finally solving the Middle East question and somehow that involving Israel be able to rebuild their temple and getting us to this point that we talk about in this passage. So perhaps that happens before the time of the tribulation, maybe it happens in the early days of the tribulation. But in Ezekiel 40, Ezekiel had a vision of a man with a measuring rod in his hand, just like John was given one here. And he goes on to measure out a temple far bigger than the first one, Solomon's from 957 B.C., or Zerubbabel's of 516 B.C. That's the one that Herod expanded and made opulent in 20 B.C. And the context in Ezekiel makes clear that this is the temple that's going to be in place when Messiah reigns on earth from Jerusalem, which we associate with Revelation 20, his millennial reign on earth. But lots of Old Testament scriptures anticipate this nearly perfect time 
That's not quite the new earth yet. Now look again at Revelation 11.1. In verse 1, John's given a read, as we said there, and it's commonly used to measure in that day. And notice he's called to measure three things. Measure three things. The first one is the temple, which houses the holy place and the holy of holies. Then he's told to measure the altar, and here it looks like it means that altar where sacrifices were made in the priest's courtyard just outside the holy place. And he's also told to measure those who worship there, those who worship there. So the building where the sacrifice is made and the actual worshipers themselves. The point seems to be that God is getting a comprehensive measure of what's happening in both the externals, the outer things, and the internals of their worship inside them. Now, too often, what do we do in churches today? We focus on externals, what the buildings is, is like, the style of music that we have, the, uh, how long the pastor preaches or doesn't preach. When God measures worship, he also makes sure that he includes what's going on inside the minds and the hearts of those of us who have come to worship. And I, I've always been impressed uh, remembering the story of going to Romania and getting to preach in a church there and noticing that every believer before they entered the door stopped and paused and bowed their head. And I asked the pastor, what are they doing? He said, well, over here, uh, every person before they comes into church pauses at the door and asks God to bless them and that they'd be a blessing to others while they're inside the building. Uh, they are coming to worship God rather than to recite their own list of grievances. And in, as they come in, they're also looking to identify others that they can do what Hebrews says, to stir up love and good works in the people that they see. And they just take that moment to pause and say, God, as I go in, may I be here for the right reasons and do what you want me to do internally while I'm here. Now, let me ask you this. If your heart was measured this morning, if you could get out the reed, the rod, whatever it was, the measuring stick, the yardstick, whatever it was, if your heart was measured this morning, would God find a heart that's glowing and growing? Or would he find a heart that's shriveling up from lack of time spent with Jesus? It's quite a th thing to think about, isn't it? Because um, it's easy, relatively easy, to get up and get dressed and get into It's not easy, is it? Sometimes that's a war. My goodness, you know, you got little kids, hey, get, uh, you're running late, they're arguing with each other in the car, you put the smile on, you go into church, you know, so sometimes that's hard. And I am so thankful for all of you, especially those of you who are a little bit older. And man, your body is fighting against you every step of the way to get up and go to church on a Sunday morning. So impressed with my father-in-law. He, he has lots of hurts and pains and things, but he has said over and over, Danny, I'm going to go to church as long as I'm physically able. He says, if nothing else, just to show the neighbors whose team I'm on. <laughs> I like that. I like that. And uh, I also love when people get in the right frame of mind when they come to worship. You know, I think about a childlike simplicity, you know, a childlike heart, right? Jesus commended child. He said, you need to receive the kingdom of God like this little child with an innocence, with a trust. You know, he never did uh, say, you need to, when you think about heavenly things, you need to think like a grumpy old man, you know? No, he didn't do that, did he? He said, you need to think like a child full of wonder about the discoveries they'll see in the word, about how neat it is to have the relationships that we have in the body of Christ. You know, um, a couple years ago, Toby Keith, the country singer. Is that the first time I've ever mentioned Toby Keith in a sermon? Probably so, yeah. Toby Keith was playing golf with Clint Eastwood, you know. And Clint Eastwood is in his, is in his 80s now. 
And he said, uh, hey, hey, uh, Keith, uh, Clint, what's your secret? How do you stay so young and fresh feeling when people are around you? And he said, well, I'll let you in on a little secret, Toby. Every day when I wake up, there's this old man that wants to get into my life. Come in the door. Toby, I don't let the old man in. Isn't that great? Don't let the old man in. Toby wrote a song about it. Willie Nelson's recorded it now. But that really represents that heart that says, you know what? Uh, there are new discoveries to be made. There are relationships to encourage, younger, older, and I'm going to get in on every bit of it God's got for me. I think of the heart of the psalmist that said, uh, don't let me die till I get the chance to show, share this stuff with the next generation one more time. I think the point that's being made in Revelation 11 is that up until this future time for Israel, their worship had not measured up. It had been found wanting, tried and found wanting, measured and found wanting, because they'd been so worried about external worship things that they had not internally worshipped Jesus as their Messiah. What's going to happen during those last seven years? God's going to do a harvest thing within the nation of Israel, and it's going to extend to the nations of the world. And it's so exciting to think about that. I've already told you, I believe the church will already be raptured up to heaven, but God won't leave himself without a witness on earth. There will be witnessing going on on the earth, and it will uh, start right there in Jerusalem where Christ was crucified. And I think that viewpoint supported by verse 8, which refers to Jerusalem figuratively as Sodom and Egypt. We know Jerusalem was the city that Christ was crucified in. In verse 8, he says that a lot of the worship has been more like Sodom's worship. We know that's wicked worship. From the Old Testament times, God rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah for their sins. And also, we think of Egypt and the plagues that judged Egypt because their reliance was on gods made of idols, idol gods, and not the one true God. Look again at verse 2. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So John's not allowed to measure what we call that court of the Gentiles. He says it's been given up to them who will trample on the holy city, and it says the time period for 42 months. And 42 months equals 1,260 days, as we see in the next verse. It also equals three and a half years. Uh, so any way you look at it, Half of seven years are these numbers, and so this is going to happen, this desecration of the temple for the last half of the tribulation, which lines up with what Daniel said in Daniel chapter 9. So this verse is probably referring to the last three and a half years of the tribulation when the Antichrist will do everything he can to persecute Jews, and we'll see more on that in chapter 12. Jeremiah 37 calls it the day of Jacob's trouble. Here's what Jesus said about it in Matthew 24. For then there will be great tribulation. A few verses before this, he says, this is what Daniel talked about in his prophecy. Let the reader understand when the abomination of desolation messes up the temple. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no nor shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Now, elect there in Matthew 24 more than likely is talking about Israel. Um, Jesus actually refers to Daniel's prophecy for Israel just a few verses before that, so he's bringing back in the end-time hopes and expectations of the Jews. Now, if only God would do something to get Israel to turn to their Messiah during those days of tribulation. Oh, wait! That's exactly what happens in the next verses, verses 3 through 14, where God raises up two witnesses. 
God raises up two witnesses. Now, it's hard to look at this chapter and not speculate about the identity of these two witnesses. I'll do that in a moment. And which half of the tribulation they will prophesy in. I'll do that in a minute too. But before we do that, let's just pause to thank God that he always gives a witness. God always gives a witness or two or more. He always does that. He always gives advanced word. And what we read here is that they're going to prophesy. In verse 3 it says, I will give power to my two witnesses. They'll prophesy or preach 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth for three and a half total years, either the first three and a half years of the tribulation or the second half of the tribulation or somehow in the middle, the middle part of the tribulation, somewhere in there. But half of the time there will be these two witnesses that will preach their hearts out and nobody can do them harm. You know, it just takes a little bit of harm for a lot of preachers to shut their mouths in our day and uh, back up and be quiet. Many of you are afraid of some kind of difficulty for sharing the Lord, and you're quiet as field mice, you know, when uh, people give you any challenge or whatever. During this time, for three and a half years, they'll preach boldly about the need for Jesus, and nobody will be able to stop them. And that does happen around the world today, and it has happened historically, and thank God for his faithful witnesses, and that he always gives a witness. I want you to see Amos 3.7. We're going to put it up here for you. Amos 3.7. This is a verse that you might want to have memorized if you love the word. Amos 3.7 says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. Is he going to judge a nation? Is he going to judge the nation of Edom? He sends Obadiah the prophet to say, Because Edom has done these things against Israel, God's going to judge them. He sent word to them about impending judgment. He sent Jonah, the prophet, right, to Assyria and said, you're going to be destroyed for what you're doing to this area of the world, taking it over like you own it and treating people harshly and all that you do. Forty more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And guess what they did? They repented in that generation. God stayed his hand of judgment. Well, in Nahum's day, he sent the prophet back to Assyria. They didn't repent and judgment fell. God always gives advanced word. Before God sent the flood, Noah preached repentance to the world, right? He preached his heart out, hoping that people would say, hey, in that ark lies our salvation. What Noah said is true. It's going to happen. I believe it. And I'm going to get on the ark. He preached that they could, but they didn't. It was only him, his wife, his sons, and their wives. God gave Old Testament Israel many advanced warnings about captivity if they didn't repent. But he also gave them the hope, knowing that they were sinners, and we are too. He gave them the hope that if they ever did repent, no matter how bad it had got for them, God would forgive, he'd restore, and they could change their destiny. Before Jesus began his public ministry, who came? John the Baptist to prepare the way, right? John the Baptist was giving advance word. And what did he say? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near, it's at hand he is here. The king is here, so the kingdom is near and here. He gave advance word. Before Jesus' second coming, what's going to happen? There's going to be at least these two witnesses that make clear that most people living during that time, uh, what they'll need to hear, repent because it's coming quick. It's coming quick. They're going to be preaching. Uh, we don't, aren't told for certain what they say, but you know, the text makes clear that most people living during that time are going to hate what's coming out of their mouth. I'm guessing the same kind of things the world hates to hear preachers say, the world will hate to hear preachers say then. The things we don't like now, we won't like then. The world hates when godless lies are exposed, doesn't it? 
Uh, the world hates hearing that, as individuals, rebellious sinners, the world hates hearing that Jesus is the only way of salvation, that apart from him, we're in trouble. And they'll be speaking some of those same things then. He always gives advance warning, even during the future time of tribulation. So will they witness during the first three and a half years or the second three and a half years? Hey, some of the best scholars that really take the word very seriously believe it's going to be that last three and a half uh, years. And you could look at the text here and draw that comparison because it looks like that's what's happening in verse 2. So that may be what's happening in verse 3. I think it's going to be the first three and a half years. I think it's going to be part of what God uses to raise the other witnesses up or maybe somewhere in the middle there. I think when we saw in chapter 7, 144,000 distinctly Jewish witnesses uh, are excited about sh turning to the Lord and sharing themselves. I think in part what's going to inspire them is those two witnesses. But now we're at a three-point shot. You have just as much chance of being right as being wrong, so don't take that to the bank like you do your slam dunk stuff. Either way, their preaching is going to annoy the Antichrist and the world that is, exists during that time. Uh, I think about how we're told the Antichrist is going to take power and he's going to have the whole world singing John Lennon's Imagine Song. You know, I've noticed, I, I didn't watch the opening ceremonies of the Olympics this time, but I knew it was going to happen. I knew somewhere in there they'd sing John Lennon's Imagine Song. They've done it ever since he died. And you've got the whole world singing an atheist hymn. Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people thinking like liberal John Lennon, right? And uh, this worldwide utopia. And that's the song Antichrist is going to take power singing. He said, we don't need God. We don't know what happened to them Christians. Maybe aliens took them. Maybe the rapture of the Bible is true. We don't know what happened to them, but thank God they're gone. Now we can go on to a world without God. Now we can go on to the spirit of Psalm 2. Uh, no need for God, we're going to do earth without God, and the Antichrist is going to lead that charge. These are going to be the days of utopia. And it, he, he's just going to be singing that tune all the time, and the world will too. And, uh, and you know what he's also going to do? He's going to say, hey, everybody needs to get in on this godless message. And so we can't really tolerate people in the world continuing to talk about God and true religion and Jesus and those type things. And so he's going to censor all dissenting voices and nobody will be able to hear the kind of preaching that they hear now, the kind of dissenting viewpoints they have now. Any calls for freedom against this one world way of thinking will be suppressed. It won't make the TV, it won't make the internet, it won't make the news. And we're already seeing things fall into place where that kind of global censorship could happen, right? Somebody has a different voice and quickly take him off the Spotify, take him off the radio, take him off the TV. It's almost impossible to hear them unless you have access to an alternative form of media. Well, somehow, even though the Antichrist is going to try to suppress every other viewpoint during those seven years of tribulation, somehow only two voices are going to get through during the first part of this time and he can't control them and they're these two prophets witnessing there in Jerusalem um, and he is it's going to make him so angry and the whole world is going to hate seeing that now uh, we have a small comparison here in Virginia because after September 11th the towers fell 
You might remember that uh, we had two of our state preachers, Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, talking a day or two after that, and they said, these are the kind of things that happen when a nation turns from God, some vehicle of judgment comes. And I'm not affirming all the way that they said those things and that type of thing, but I'll tell you, the entire world turned and said, they need to shut up. They need to stop talking like that. And there were apologies offered and those type things. Well, these guys, when an entire world wants to be godless and antichrist, these guys will be saying, Jesus is still the answer for the world today. And try as they might, they won't be able to shut them up and the world will absolutely hate them. We don't know who they are, but we do know they're presented as men just like Moses and Elijah from the Old Testament. And I do think that's who they are. We already saw a supernatural occurrence of them in the Gospels when at Christ's transfiguration, all of a sudden Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about his coming death. And uh, they uh, would be very, if it's not them, it'll be people like them. Uh, and they are referred to in verse 4 as being like olive trees and lampstands. Those are historic references from the book of Jeremiah. Oil fed the lamp that enlightened Israel's holy of holies. Uh, that reference means these guys are like energizer bunnies as they enlighten people through the, their witness. So the oil represents in Scripture the Holy Spirit anointing the words and work of God's people. Uh, lampstands represent us being the light of the world and sharing God's truth. So these will be spirit-filled witnesses who preach and teach what people need to hear then even as we try to now. Verse 3 lets us know they're clothed in sackcloth. Uh, somebody shout out, why do people wear sackcloth in the Old Testament times? Are they coming for us? Okay. All right. If we need to act, we will. Okay. Why did people wear a sackcloth in the Bible? They were mourning or grieving something, right? And so I think these guys are wearing sackcloth as an imagery that they are torn up at the state spiritually that Israel's in and its need for Jesus. And they're preaching about Jesus. And so with tears in their eyes, with love in their heart, they're saying to not only Israel but the entire world, hey, we're in these bad times. You need to turn to Jesus now. This fellow's making false lies, false promises. Don't listen to him. We're going to find more about the Antichrist as we go along. In verse 5, it tells us that people will want to harm them, but if anyone tries, the fire of their preaching will devour their enemies' arguments. And if anyone wants to try to harm them physically, fire will take care of them, like when Elijah called down fire on the prophets of Baal. You say, well, why does anybody in the world listen to them? Uh, why would uh, they even be allowed to have any kind of media exposure? And I don't know the answers to those things. I just know that God always gives himself a witness. And Satan, trying as he can to suppress the hope of the gospel and the hope for the world, it gets there. It gets there in such a way that both through the testimony of creation and the words of witnesses throughout history, we're told that all people are without excuse that don't follow the revelation they've been given to the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, verse 6 lets us know that as often as they want, they'll be able to do what Elijah and Moses did. Uh, they'll be able to stop it rain, uh, stop it from raining. Elijah was able to pray to God, and that happened. That'll be happening. Uh, they're able to bring down plagues like the Egyptian plagues, like happened when Moses uh, was um, leading the exodus out of Egypt. Now look again at verse 7. It says, When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. So there's three and a half years where they can't be harmed, and then when they finish their testimony, they can be. 
Verse 7 brings in the beast from the bottomless pit. And this is the first explicit reference to the Antichrist in Revelation. We're going to get over 30 more before we're done to go along with the many mentions of him in Scripture. And I already told you when the first seal was opened in Revelation 6, I believe that's describing the Antichrist and his uh, coming into the world to rule during that time that uh, Daniel and others had talked about. But when the two witnesses' testimony from God is done, and not a moment before, the Antichrist will finally be able to kill them. Now, that's true for that man then, those two men then. But you know, it's also true for you now. You are immortal until it's your time. Why not go ahead and serve the Lord courageously? He's got you in his hand. He's got your days in his hand. The psalmist said that every day was numbered before you had one of them. God is sovereign. His providential care is over all things. And you will be blessed by following God's call in your life and not shriveling back in fear. Whatever that is, whatever calling he has for you, however he wants to uniquely use you to bless the world through gifts of service, through preaching, through teaching, through singing, whatever it is, and you are immortal until your time is done. We'll hear a story about that in just a moment. And then he kills them. This Antichrist kills them and leaves their dead bodies in the streets of Jerusalem to be gawked at. Leaving dead bodies in the street is a tremendous sign of disrespect, especially in the uh, Middle East there and the uh, Mediterranean area where they expected the body to be dealt with sooner rather than later and dealt with well and cared for well. Verses 9 and 10 let us know the world will be so glad when they finally die, they'll treat it like it was Christmas Day. Gifts will be exchanged. TikTok videos will be made. There will be funny and disrespectful memes showing their death and all that happens there. We're finally done with those Jesus freaks. Now we can get on with Antichrist's utopian vision. But if you're here this morning and love Jesus, you can't help but smile when you read verses 11 and 12. Look what it says. After the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And just like Jesus had in Acts 1, they ascend to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. Same kind of thing as Jesus' rapture to heaven and their rapture to heaven, and hopefully ours as well. These two witnesses will go right up to be with the Lord. You know, I think about that. Uh, there was a time people reading this information couldn't understand how the entire world could be viewing the event at the same time. But we don't wonder that, do we? I did want to show you this quote from the 300s, Tychonius, who was a great Christian preacher. He said, how could those who dwell on the earth rejoice at the death of two men if they died in only one city? I know this is the word of God, Tychonius said, and that that's, you know, God tells us the truth and stuff, but how could that be? Well, as people have read the Rev book of Revelation for 2,000 years, all, so many of the how could that be's have now become, oh yeah, we know how that happens. <laughs> We've got these little phones, don't we? And we'll all get a text alert at the same time. Oh no, something's happening in Jerusalem there. Hey, they're dead! Woohoo! Memes and TikTok videos and all the different things. And then three and a half days later, the world will get the text alert. Look back to Jerusalem. Something's happening there. And the whole world will get to see this resurrection from the dead, this ascension to heaven. And it's so awesome and powerful to think about. 
Now, even as the Antichrist press secretary is trying to figure out how they're going to spin this unspinnable reality, an earthquake, we're told, is going to destroy a tenth of Jerusalem. 7,000 people are going to be killed. And for one moment during that time, those looking on will stop and give glory to God and say, yep, God did that. God did that. Because God always gives a witness or two. Right now, it's you and I. Let's do it courageously. Let's do it courageously. Let's pray. Let's give to send others. Let's go as we're able, not only in our own communities, but to the ends of the earth. In Romania, during communist days, the communists tried to kill Pastor Joseph San for preaching the word. And they sent uh, their thugs, their soldiers to him, and they said, Joseph, if you don't knuckle under, we're going to kill you. And Joseph San with the kind of boldness that the Lord gives, here's what he said. Before you kill me, I want to say that your chief weapon is killing, but my chief weapon is dying. And they asked him what he meant by that, and here's how he responded. If you kill me, you will sprinkle every sermon I've ever preached with my blood, and people will know that I love the Lord enough to die for him. So your chief weapon is killing, but mine is dying. I want to warn you that if you use yours, I'll be forced to use mine. And they went away saying, Joseph is crazy. Let's leave him alone. He was crazy crazy in love with Jesus. And I hope you are as well. Go ahead and bow your heads. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.